Wildfires are scorching the West Coast, leaving behind a path of death and destruction. Forecasters call it a bomb cyclone. Winds of 150 miles per hour. Tens of millions of Americans are dealing with dangerously high temperatures, with many areas hitting triple digits. Scientists say climate change is worsening flooding around the world. This is going to get really ugly really fast here. Hi, I'm David Knowles, uh, host of the Climate Crisis Podcast, and I'm here with my fellow co-host, Ben Adler. This week, you're talking with Adele Thomas, who does work in the climate justice field and has helped write the IPCC's latest report on climate change. Can you tell us, for the layman who might not know what that term means, can you tell us what climate justice or environmental justice consists of? Yes. So environmental problems, and this was the case since before climate change was even known, have tended to be worse in communities that are less advantaged in society, poorer communities, and in the U.S., at least, communities of color, African-American, Latino, Native American, and Asian American as well. So, for example, conventional pollution will be worse in those neighborhoods on average because power plants or highways are more likely to be, or certain kinds of factories are more likely to be located in those areas. So that's called, that's called environmental injustice. And environmental justice is the effort to correct that injustice. Mm -hmm. um, climate justice is the same thing. You see poorer countries being harder hit than richer countries and suffering more because they have less resources to prepare and deal with the effects of climate change like extreme weather events such as hurricanes. And you see the same phenomenon within a country. In the US, for example, what happened with Hurricane Katrina and all the lives lost in New Orleans in 2005 or Hurricane Sandy in 2012 in New York where public housing on the Lower East Side of Manhattan or in Red Hook in Brooklyn were some of the hardest hit neighborhoods and richer neighborhoods that weren't right on the waterfront and where people had more resources to deal with the problems that were created by the hurricane didn't suffer as badly. When we were in Glasgow, we heard a lot of talk from representatives of developing nations about making sure the industrialized world, the first world, if you will, started to pay its fair share for the problem that the first world really kind of created with climate change. And I'm curious, when you did you bring this up with your guest and what was uh, Ms. Thomas's view on going forward, how much money should be paid to developing nations? Yes. She called it the trillion dollar question because she pointed out that in Copenhagen in 2009, the developed countries agreed to produce $100 billion a year by 2020 for climate finance. That essentially means money to advance climate justice by giving poorer countries the resources to develop a clean energy economy, adapt to climate change. And what poorer countries are now also saying they need money for is loss and damage, meaning compensation for the effects of climate change that they cannot deal with just through adaptation. 
And this new report that she worked on catalogs the losses and damages in a way that the IPCC hasn't before. And the striking thing about this whole subject is in some ways there's a parallel to, say, reparations for slavery, right? And that debate on, you know, sort of trying to rectify a past wrong and, you know, make either a symbolic or an actual effort to level a playing field. With climate justice and with climate change more broadly, we're really looking at effects that are going to play out over the coming decades and centuries. So it's it's a a forward-looking emphasis as well as an acknowledgement that the developing world has not contributed the way that the industrialized world has to the problem of climate change. How is that future focus? Assume that's pretty contentious for a lot of governments. Yes. Loss and damage is a very uh, politically contentious topic. The rich countries have only agreed to provide the $100 billion a year for adaptation and for fighting climate change, like developing clean energy in developing countries. And they haven't even come up with the whole 100 billion a year. They're they're behind on that pledge. So it remains to be seen whether they will fully get on board with the climate justice agenda. All right, well, let's hear your interview. I can't wait to hear it. Joining us now is Dr. Del Thomas, a senior Caribbean research associate for the Impact Project at Climate Analytics, which is a think tank. She's also an author of the Summary for Policymakers and one of the chapters of the latest IPCC Working Group 2 report. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Very glad to be here. I was hoping that you could just start off by giving our audience a sort of brief description of what exactly it is that you study and how you came to be so concerned about climate change and to work on it full time. Yeah, sure. So the work that I do, I look at what are adaptation options, what are limits to adaptation and also issues of loss and damage. So negative impacts of climate change. And my work mostly focuses in the small island developing state context um, and also with coastal communities. I'm from the Bahamas, um, born and raised in the Bahamas. And so it's a very, it's an issue that's very close to my heart. So, you know, I've experienced directly impacts of climate change with hurricanes, seeing coastal erosion. And so for me and many other people from small islands and coastal communities, climate change is something that we're experiencing now. And so this is, you know, why it's something that I have dedicated my, my research career to. So can you, for listeners who may not be familiar with the concepts of environmental justice in general and climate justice in particular, can you sort of say what they mean and uh, in particular what they mean to you? Yeah, sure. So environmental justice and climate justice have really, you know, started coming into the mainstream. These are terms that have been used for decades, you know, by advocacy groups, by people that have already been experiencing impacts of climate change, but now more people are starting to hear about it. And so the term climate justice in particular is used in different ways, um, in different contexts and by different communities. 
but it generally includes three main principles. The first is distributive justice, which looks at you know, who's benefiting from, or who has benefited from climate change versus who is suffering impacts the most. And so that sort of gets into you know, who has historically emitted the most and been able to benefit from development versus who is facing the impacts of climate change now. The second is procedural justice, which looks at who's coming up with the solutions for climate change, who's sitting at the table and who's not at the table. And the last one is recognition justice, um, which, you know, basic respect and engaging with different people, bringing those people to the table to deal with climate change. So that's sort of it, a bit academic, um, but I hope I've, I've, I've broken it down a bit. Let's talk about the latest report and maybe like through each of those lenses one at a time. Does that make sense? Sure. So this latest IPCC report was quite a while in the making, and it's really provided a robust and very concrete assessment of how climate justice is being experienced now in terms of distributive justice. So who's experiencing the impacts of climate change? We're finding that vulnerable and marginalized communities around the world are experiencing impacts of climate change disproportionately. Now, So migrant communities, informal settlements, um, the poorest groups of people, children, women, these people are experiencing climate change impacts most intensively now. And that's at a community scale, so within all countries. But then we also see it at the global scale. So we see developing countries are experiencing these impacts more intensely than in the developed world. Um, And I think that's a big thing coming out of this, because as we increasingly see climate change impacts around the world, so we see the floods in Germany, we see the wildfires in Australia and in the U.S., we can think that everyone's experiencing climate change the same, but it's not. Even within the developing world, we see that there's 15 times um, more people that are dying from extreme impacts associated with climate change than in the developed world. So for distributive justice, we have clear scientific evidence that, you know, specific communities and developing countries in general are having these impacts of climate change more intensely. For procedural justice, who's sitting at the table? We're finding that there is work going on now to adapt to climate change. So to, you know, make these impacts of climate change less intense. But we're also seeing here an injustice. So there are some places that are adapting more than others. We see that finance in particular is leading to this adaptation gap, which is what we call it. There are simply places that do not have the financial resources to adapt and communities that don't. And then for recognition justice, the report really finds that it is critical that all actors, everyone that's affected by climate change, particularly those that are most affected, need a seat at the table, need to be involved in how we respond to climate change. So we report on all three of those, and it's it's you know it's a it's a really in depth report, thousands of pages, and we do deal with justice in particular. Can you just talk talk a little bit about why it is that the impacts are so much more widely and deeply felt in lower income communities within a country and also in developing countries? Yeah, it comes down to your base level of vulnerability and also the resources that you have to respond to these impacts. So an example that I use is Hurricane Dorian, which in 2019 affected my home country of the Bahamas. And the majority of deaths and missing people were concentrated in the Haitian immigrant community. 
they were already living in subpar housing. So when that hurricane came through, it just decimated their housing. They didn't have resources to recover. They were completely de dependent on government systems that were inadequate. So while you had rich people that were affected by the storm, they had access to money to be able to fly out or to you know, go somewhere else or to rebuild their homes. Whereas people that were already you know, in a poor state before the storm have less of these resources to respond. And so that's why we're seeing you know, these disproportionate impacts, even though the hurricane you know, may have decimated an entire island or an entire community, those people that had less resources beforehand face more impacts. Right. And that is presumably one of the main drivers of the um, much higher death rate that you referred to in developing countries. So what are the ways of reducing that injustice by transferring resources from wealthier communities or wealthier countries to ones that are in greater need because of climate change? Yeah, absolutely. And so this is why I think the report is so critical as an input to the UNFCCC. So at the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, um, there's this mechanism in place whereby developed countries, you know, we're supposed to provide $100 billion in climate finance to developing countries to deal with climate change. And what we found in the report and other, you know, studies, because we just report on what other studies have said, is that this $100 billion goal has not been met. In fact, the vast majority of finance has gone towards mitigation, um, which is reducing greenhouse gas emissions rather than adaptation, which will allow these developing countries to sort of prepare for these impacts of climate change. And that there simply isn't enough finance for developing countries. It's just inadequate. And so I think the report speaks to the need for much greater finance for adaptation, because without that, it's, you know, it's, it's impossible to, to try and, and deal with the impacts that developing countries are facing now. Can you give an example of how that money would be deployed? Like, for instance, the example you gave of the hurricane in the Bahamas, people living in substandard housing being more vulnerable. If the Bahamas received some of that money that, you know, the United States or Europe or whoever contributed, how would that money be deployed to prevent, let's say, people from the Haitian immigrant community in the Bahamas from dying or being more harmed next time? Yeah, absolutely. So we have, you know, good studies on the efficacy of early warning systems, you know, so even just learning in advance when these extreme events are going to occur and using that information to get people out of harm's way building hurricane shelters that would be able to house people. Some people didn't leave the community because they didn't have anywhere to go. And so having actual shelters that would be able to withstand these category five hurricanes that are coming through. And then even just having the resources to help people to rebuild quickly so that they can get back to life and not be so dependent on you know, public sources or on NGOs after a hurricane. So there are clear ways where we can put the finance to prevent deaths and to prevent, you know, the escalating costs that come if you're not able to adapt. What would you say, are there any particular findings in the newest IPCC report with regard to climate justice that stood out to you 
as especially noteworthy, something that one of our listeners would be really interested to know? I mean, what for me was noteworthy was that, you know, climate justice has coalesced around loss and damage. And for a long time, loss and damage has been something that has been quite a contentious subject. Um, In IPCC, we haven't specifically referred to loss and damage. But in this report, we actually report on losses and damages, which are the negative impacts and negative risks of climate change. And I think, you know, we have some really strong wording in there around losses and damages being experienced now, adaptation not being able to prevent all losses and damages, and existing institution and financial structures not sufficient for losses and damages that are being experienced now. So what I think that this report does is it really highlights that there's a need to focus on losses and damages and shows how these are um, unjustly distributed. And I think it's, it's really solid scientific evidence that adds to the advocacy work that has gone around climate justice. So there's scientific backing for this, you know, the advocacy work. What do you think about investments in adaptation that may alter the physical environment more? Like, you know, is it a good idea to build seawalls when that's not the natural state of the environment and it's not necessarily the best for absorbing storm surges? But on the other hand, you want to prevent flooding. What do you think and what does the report have to say about that? Yeah, the report is very clear that we have to take a long-term view in terms of thinking about adaptation. So something like a seawall may be good in the short term for a particular place, but in the long term, it's not going to be feasible. And actually seawalls cause problems elsewhere. And so what the report has a full section on maladaptation, which is when you cause unintended negative consequences as you adapt. And it shows the need to look at the long-term risks of climate change. What the report also underscores is that we need to be moving more towards restoring ecosystems instead of moving to these hard infrastructure type of solutions, because ecosystems really provide adaptation benefits while also providing mitigation benefits, you know, acting as carbon sinks. And all of this is underscored by keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees. If we go above 1.5 degrees, report is very clear that some adaptation strategies that we have in place now are simply not gonna be feasible. And so what the report really does is it says, we need to mitigate now to keep temperatures to 1.5. We need to rapidly ramp up um, adaptation and we also need to deal with loss and damage. When you talk about adaptation measures currently in place that wouldn't be sufficient if the average global warming increases from the current 1.1 degrees Celsius to 1.5 or greater, um, an example of that is like a seawall that won't be high enough anymore. Is that like what we're talking about? Yeah. So we're talking about like seawalls will not be (laughs) sufficient. Right. Um, even if in, in terms of extreme events, so like think of a hurricane as they become more and more intense, like building codes, like, you know, that's not going to be sufficient. Things um, in farming, so irrigation, 
if you have water shortages, then irrigation is not really going to be an option um, because right. you're going to need that water for, to, to drink. So it really underscores that things that we can do now may not be feasible, the worse the climate change gets. And maladaptation would be like, can you give me an example of, of something where adaptation is actually counterproductive? The measure has become harmful in some way or unintended consequences, you said, I think. Yeah. So one of the things that, you know, is coming up is heat. So we see, you know, heat waves are increasing and an adaptation response to increased heat waves may be to get more people cooling systems. So to get air conditioning. Uh Right. But we see air conditioning is a big energy suck. (laughs) People then who don't have air conditioning are even more at risk. So turning to air conditioning as an adaptation strategy would have maladaptive side effects. Right. So instead of doing adaptation, then we need to look at things like greening cities or having green roofs. And most importantly, limiting temperatures to 1.5 so that we don't have these big widespread um, heat waves. You know, it's funny. You know, it's funny about air conditioners, they also, obviously you're talking on the, on the global scale that increasing energy demand contributes more to climate change, but on the local, on the, I mean, the very immediate surroundings, an air conditioner expels heat, yep. right? So New York City, where I live, if you walk down the street in the summertime, you will occasionally get blasted with the heat yep. from a, a building's air conditioner and on the, and the subway platforms, are more are hotter because of the heat coming out from the air conditioned subway cars. So uh, you can actually see that in the sort of micro uh, environment as well. Yeah. And in the Bahamas where I'm from, we actually will have blackouts because the energy demand is just too high. Right. So (laughs) then you have hours where you don't have any electricity at all. Yeah. So that's a good example. So there's obviously a moral argument uh, for climate justice, but in terms of politically getting wealthier nations to contribute more to climate finance, how is there an argument to be made that it's actually in their own interest? Like, how are you going to compel them to do that? Well, that is a trillion dollar question, <laughs> which is what the UNFCCC has been trying to do from its inception, right, is to figure out how to get this to happen without having legally binding commitments, because right now it's all voluntary. And so from the IPCC and as a, sci- as a scientist, what I could do is provide the evidence that's there, but it really comes down to political will. And so in the report, we really underscore that political will is a key enabler of getting any of this done. We're trying to get because people always ask, what can I do about climate change, right? So you can stop eating meat or you can recycle, but what you can really do is to push your representatives or push that this needs to be something that needs to happen. And so when we solve that question, then I'll let you know, Ben. (laughs) Thank you. I look forward to hearing from you then. (laughs) 